All right. I'm happy to be here to sharing God's word with you all. We'll continue our study this morning. We've been looking at the book of Matthew, and we're on chapter 11. And we'll be covering verses uh, 20 through 30. We'll read them together. Oh, maybe I'll just read them. You can follow with me. So starting from verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And for Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You'll be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, you would have remained till this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment than for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord. In C.S. Lewis's series, The Chronicles of Narnia, there's a scene where a lion begins to sing a beautiful song that reveals his power and his glory. The lion's name is Aslan, and he represents Jesus. It is a moment when all of the other characters have an opportunity to place, uh, praise Aslan for his majesty. However, there's one character named Uncle Andrew who feels threatened by the song and makes up reasons why the song is unimportant. He tells himself that it's only a lion singing and that he can't be really singing it after all. It's only roaring. The more Uncle Andrew deafens his ears to the beauty of Azan's song, the more incapable he becomes of perceiving reality. After a while, he only hears only roaring instead of the song's words of glory. At the end of the scene, when Aslan brings his creation to life, saying, Narlia, awake, Uncle Andrew can only hear a snarl and no words. He had shut himself out of the fullness of life because he had shut his ears to the lion's song. Let's pray. Father, we need you this morning. We need your word in our lives. You created us and you know our deepest longings. Would you come and meet us where we are this morning? We come to you humbly with our bowed head and hearts. We acknowledge your mercies and grace for us this day. We pray for the Holy Spirit to give us your wisdom and our understanding of your word and help us to respond to your word in the way you want us to, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would cover me, that you would hide me this morning, that my sin would not taint your word, 
But Lord, give us your truth, your life-giving words to us, and help us to listen and hear and respond this morning. Thank you, in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Our passage today describes the responses of those who listened to Jesus during his earthly ministry. As we shall see this morning, many people rebelled against God and did not repent. You see, the problem of humanity lies in the inner hearts. Their hearts, people who are listening, also our hearts this morning. How did the people respond to Jesus' claim as Messiah? How do you and I respond? The main point of the passage this morning is this. Everybody, everyone has a responsibility to respond to Christ's revelation. And salvation is promised to those who put their trust in him. What is your response? Only through Christ's sacrifice and the cross on our behalf do we find salvation and rest. In him we have victory over sin and death and become adopted heirs into the kingdom of God. Several weeks ago, we learned why Jesus was placed on earth, what his mission was on this earth. During the short three years of ministry, he performed many miracles. He opened the eyes of the blind. He instantly gave strength to the legs of the paralyzed who can get up and walk. And he touched the lepers, the social outcasts. He touched them and he healed them. He also gave us a sermon on the mount in chapter 5, and he taught us how to pray the Lord's Prayer in chapter 6. But most importantly, he showed that he had the authority to forgive sins, thereby fulfilling the Old Testament prophecy that he himself is the Messiah who has the power both to save and to judge. God the Son revealed himself as a son of man, taking on the human flesh, living a perfect life, dying for our sins as the unblemished Lamb of God, and he resurrected on the third day. Our hope of salvation can be only found in him and through him. Let's go back to the passage in Matthew 11, 20 and 24. Then Jesus began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles had taken place because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had happened in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Woe to you. Woe to you. These are not the words that we want to hear from God because these words point to judgment and ultimately eternal death, eternal separation from our God. Jesus rebuked the people of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum because they did not repent even after witnessing his miracles. Let me just give you a little background about this series. All of these cities are located in the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. There were so many Gentiles in this surrounding area in Galilee that this area is referred to as Galilee of Gentiles in Isaiah 9, verses 1 and 2. Interestingly, Isaiah in these verses also prophesies about Jesus, the Messiah in this region. He said, The people who walked in darkness, that is in the Galilee of Gentiles in this region, have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness and on them light has shone. In contrast, to the many Gentile cities that are present in this Galilee area, 
these three cities were mainly inhabited by Jews. For example, Bethsaida was the hometown of Peter, Andrew, and Philip. So what was special, or more accurately, what was not so special about these three cities? Why did Jesus single out and rebuke these cities that are predominantly inhabited by the Jews? You see, God chose Israel, the nation of Jewish people, to reveal himself and his plan of salvation in the Old Testament. Paul states in Romans 9, verses 4 through 5, that the Jews received special revelation of God and his son Jesus. We read, They are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from race, their own very race, according to flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all and blessed forever. Therefore, the Jewish people living in Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum had the Old Testament to read and understand about these truths about themselves. Furthermore, they were the very eyewitnesses of the special personal revelation of Jesus during his ministry that was happening in their own towns. Despite such gracious evidences presented to them, the Jews, for the most part, failed to respond to Jesus and acknowledge him as their Messiah. As a result, they faced more serious judgment than the pagan Gentile cities such as Tyre and Sidon, which received no special revelation of the one true God. And the special revelation that the Jews received increased their responsibility to respond wisely because they knew God's will. This morning, we are reminded of the responsibility on our part when God reveals himself to us. We read in Luke chapter 12, verses 47 to 48, and that servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved the beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required, and from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. So we also ask, what about the Gentiles? What about the Gentiles living in this area? They didn't have the special revelation of God, but they are still held accountable because they received the general revelation of God through his creation. In Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. God revealed himself to all people, both the Jews and the Gentiles. Therefore, ignorance. Ignorance is no excuse when you and I stand before God. The beating that I just referred to in Luke 12, whether it be severe or light, is a consequence of sin that affects us all. Apart from Christ, 
no one is excused from his just judgment. And none of us can fend for ourselves when we stand before the perfect judge. Hebrews 3 warns us, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So does Jesus' warning to the Jews living in the ancient cities apply to our lives today, this morning? Some might make an argument that we did not receive the same special revelation as the Jews did back in the ancient cities. However, the reality is that we have received more, not less, more of a revelation of God than they did. We can easily read about the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Christ in the Gospels. We have the books of Acts and Revelation. We have the epistles of Peter, Paul, and John, and other books in the New Testament to understand the profound spiritual truths. In many ways, the familiarity of the teaching of the work of Christ that one gains through the participation of local church is similar to the experiences of the Jews in those ancient cities. After listening to dozens or even hundreds of sermons, seeing countless answers to prayer, witnessing God's faithfulness to his people in many ways, no one can claim ignorance to the Lord and his ways. Therefore, like the Jews, we bear much responsibility. For those Jews or Gentiles who either reject the truth of Scripture outright or take for a time only to fall away, the warning of Christ gave to the Jews does indeed apply. Turn with, turn with me to Romans chapter 11, starting from verse 17. These verses state that the natural branches, that is the Jewish people, have been broken off so the Gentiles can be grafted into the kingdom of God. All of this was part of God's master plan from the beginning to save his chosen, his elect, both the Jews and the Gentiles, through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Apostle Paul also warns us, uh, the Gentiles, not to feel superior of the unbelieving Jews in Romans 11 and emphasizes our responsibility to receive and continue in Christ and his word. So let's read, I'll read uh, from Romans 11, starting from 17. But if some of the branches, branches, meaning the Jews, were broken off, you, meaning the Gentiles, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others, now sharing the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, Remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast to your faith. Do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note that the kindness and the severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Let us not be like those who, despite Jesus' revelation of himself, did not believe. As Jesus said in the parable of the Lazarus the beggar and the rich man in Luke 16, there are some who will not be convinced, even if someone should rise from the dead. That resurrection has already occurred, and no greater proof can be given. If you're on the fence about surrendering your life to Jesus this morning, 
do not deceive yourself thinking that if one more proof can be shown to you or certain facts can be shown to you, then only then you will believe. The fact is, we have received even more proof than those whom Christ rebuked in Matthew 11. And therefore, we too have much responsibility. Trust me, we do not want to hear these words, woe to you, in the context of God's judgment. Now we have come to the second half of this morning's passage in verses uh, 25 through 30 in Matthew 11. In contrast to the people of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, let's examine Jesus' description of the appropriate response to his ministry. Starting from verse 25 of Matthew 11. At the time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Here we read that the powerful work of God's word to convict, to cause repentance and transformation in the lives was hidden from the wise and understanding and revealed to little children. Jesus is not saying that we should not educate ourselves. Indeed, it is good to look for honest uh, answers to honest questions, but that we should be careful not to become self-reliant by foolishly thinking that we are in, ju in the judgment seat in the position to weigh God's word and his work. We do not evaluate God. God evaluates us. It is impossible for us humans to wrap our minds around God who created our very own minds. Just as it is impossible for the characters in a book to comprehend the author who brought them into existence. The medical world has some knowledge of how our complicated brains work, how at the cellular level, the neurons communicate each other using neurotransmitters, and more than 200 of these chemical signals have been discovered. And yet, we have great limitations in explaining how these individual neurons come together to form a complex web of interactions that cause our brain to function as minds, as a unit. The point being, we can't even completely figure out our own human minds. So how can we expect to encompass the mind of God who made us? We read in 1 Corinthians 1.19, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning our thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Worldly and biblical knowledge, education, talent, and research are all gifts from God. And as you gain more and more knowledge and insight, all of these good gifts to us should point to the giver of all these things to us. But in our sinful minds, we've become proud. These gifts may even lead us away from God because we look to the gifts than to the giver. The antidote to this problem is the humility found in Christ, who said in Matthew 5, 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When Jesus reveals himself to us, this gracious knowledge does not puff us up but humbles us like little children, little children who are dependent on their parents, who seek their parents' approval, and who are disciplined 
so that we grow in his righteousness. For those of us who are grown up, what does this kind of childlike humility look like in an adult? The way in which prophet Isaiah responds to the call of God in Isaiah 6 gives us an excellent picture. Let's turn to Isaiah 6, please, this morning. I just said in Isaiah 6, 5, Woe is me, woe is me, for I am lost for a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This is a very appropriate response to the revelation of his sins. Isaiah's attitude before God is that of humility and repentance. Picture Isaiah with his head bowed, his hand on his heart, repenting in sackcloth and ashes. An outward demonstration of inward realization of his sin and his need for Savior. Isaiah admits that he's lost and that he's a man of unclean lips signifying the sins in his life and his confession before God. In essence, Isaiah was admitting his guilt and shame and that God should do away with him because his simple self and holy God cannot coexist in the same place. And what did God do for Isaiah? Did God give Isaiah what he justly deserved and poof, Isaiah 60 exists? No. We continue to read in Isaiah 6, 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. He touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin. Your sin atoned for. Praise be to God. What a great moment for Isaiah as he experienced his sins being washed away, his burden lifted, and his guilt is taken away. It's, he found a peace and rest in God. Our holy God showed his mercy, and he did not kill Isaiah, which is what he deserved. Instead, God showed mercy. I'm, I'm sorry, God showed grace by providing atonement, atonement for Isaiah's sins, using a hot coal from the altar. Our God reaches down to provide him with salvation. This coal from this Old Testament passage points to Jesus, God's Son, who alone atoned for our sins on the cross, that we may be clothed in his righteousness. And now, and now, we can approach the most holy place the Holy God, the Father, at the altar in faith through Jesus. We'll wrap up now uh, in passage, uh, Matthew 11, verses 27 through 30. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, of who labor are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lonely in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. In these verses, we find that, we see that 
Anyone who seeks and finds God is doing so because God has initiated a relationship in that person. He is the one who calls his people to himself. When a person responds with humility to the Lord, it is because God has granted insight and wisdom. The rest to which God calls us is not a typical rest that we look forward to on weekends, where we may be able to put our feet on a lazy boy and take a nap after working diligently throughout the week. While this physical rest is good, it's transient because our physical bodies would not last forever in the current form. But Jesus offers true spiritual rest, that is peace with God. This is what Isaiah found in Isaiah chapter 6 when he humbly exclaimed, Woe is me! And, he, and was touched with a coal. The angel assured him that his guilt was taken away, his sin atoned for. Isaiah recognized the responsibility that came with having a revelation from the Lord. And he was granted true spiritual rest because he responded in repentance with God-given humility and wisdom. All of us, all of us long for a true spiritual rest. We are burdened by our own sins, by the sins of others, by difficult relationships and circumstances, by the future, by the past, by the weight of living this fallen world. Sometimes we examine ourselves and we find ourselves filled with anxiety over earthly matters. Even while sitting at church this morning, our Good Shepherd reminds us in verse 29 that He is gentle and lowly in heart and that we will find rest for our souls when we take His yoke and learn from Him. Notice how Jesus states that He will provide the means when we come to Him in faith. And He provides the means to enter His holy presence through faith the death and resurrection of Jesus. The exact nature of the yoke Christ describes is the subject of some debate. The France Matthew Bible commentary tells us two types of yoke described in, uh, in, in Scripture. First being a single human yoke, which is found mostly in the Old Testament, and the double animal yoke that is found in the New Testament. The human yoke was designed to help a person bear the weight of buckets and other loads, and it was used as a symbol of political and social oppression. For example, in Deuteronomy 28, but God warns Israel's enemies will put a yoke of iron on their neck until they have destroyed them. And in the book of Jeremiah, when the Babylonian exile described the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar on the Israelites. And the animal yoke was designed to help a pair of oxen to work together. It appears in 2 Corinthians 6 when God warns believers not to be yoked with unbelievers. It's difficult to tell whether Christ was describing his new yoke as a single yoke or a double yoke. For example, it could be interpreted as a beneficial single version of a single human yoke since Paul describes Christians as slaves to righteousness and bond servants of the Lord. It could also be a double yoke because instead of, the, uh, instead of being yoked to the idols of the Israelites, um, shown in Psalm 106, Christians are now joined to Christ and partners with Him in His work. However, one thing is clear. 
Jesus has already lifted the crushing load of our sin, and we can rest in the fact that our deepest, weightiest need had been met, the need for forgiveness. The wooden cross that Jesus carried can be seen as a kind of yoke, the yoke of our slavery to, slavery to sin. He carried and died on that wooden yoke of our oppression, the cross, so that we can be blessed with the light yoke of service to our Lord who loves us and cares for us. We who accept Christ's salvation are no longer under the mastery of Satan, bearing the cruel yoke of the devil, but instead have a new master who trains us in righteousness. As Christ says in verse 29, we are to learn from him as he's a good teacher. I'd like to close uh, by reading um, Pats from Hosea. So if you can turn to Hosea, please. It's towards the end of the Old Testament. Hosea chapter 11, starting verse 4. So, in Hosea chapter 11, verse 4, the Lord says about this, his relationship with Israel. I let them with cords of kindness, with bands, with the bands of love. And I became to them as the one who eases a yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. This is a beautiful picture of what it is like to be under the yoke of Christ, being led with the cord of kindness, with bands of love, being freed from oppression as a yoke on our jaws is eased being nurtured, fed spiritually by the one who made us. Our new master, Christ the Lord, has come down and shown us glimpses of his glory. How will you respond to his revelation? My prayer for all of us is that we would respond to God when he called on us, as Isaiah did, saying, Woe is me to the Lord so that we don't hear the words, woe to you, from Jesus. His true rest is waiting for all who humble themselves to receive it. May we have ears to hear. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, your words are powerful. Your words give us meaning. Your words fill our deepest desires. We thank you for your son, Lord Jesus, for dying on the cross for us, providing a way to approach to God the Father at the altar. We stand naked before the ultimate judge, and there's no, no good in us that we can proclaim on our own. Only through and in Jesus can we stand before you and receive the righteousness that Jesus has atoned for us. So we thank you. We humbly bow our heads before you this morning. Thank you for your word this morning to us. We ask that you continue to speak to us and transform us. Jesus, I pray. Amen.